The bottom line is, in terms of our health, the outcomes and the differences between people living in different communities start very early in life. You know, healthy foods, it's just really difficult, I think, for some people. And if they can't give that to their children, there's that responsibility of trying to feed your kids and knowing that the food that you're giving them isn't ideal. We know that the first 1,000 days are the most important time in a child's life. It's, in a way, it's like if you get that right, you, you have a much better chance of, of a child being healthier in the future. Welcome to The Ferret Investigates, The Health Gap, a three-part special podcast from The Ferret Media Co-op and Greater Govanhill magazine. I'm Summer Jamal, a reporter for Greater Govanhill magazine. And I'm Karen Goodwin, co-editor of The Ferret. And over these next three episodes, we're asking you to come on a journey with us as we investigate the health gap. That's the stark difference between the health and well-being of people depending on whether you live in Scotland's most or least deprived communities. The differences are pretty dramatic. In Scotland, men in the most deprived areas of Scotland have a life expectancy of almost 14 years less than those in the least deprived areas. And for women, that gap is 10 and a half years. There are also big differences in how many healthy years people will live depending on their postcode or the risk of dying due to drugs or alcohol, or getting cancer, or developing other health problems. But we want to do something a bit different in this podcast. We're not just focusing on the problem, but speaking to people about the solutions that could help us fix it. Things that could make the health gap in Scotland into something that future generations mind as an issue from way back when. It's part of our year-long project called Mind the Health Gap. In January this year, the Health Foundation published a report, Leave No One Behind, which revealed that that gap was widening. Researchers said there were three main factors driving that. Child and infant health, drug-related deaths, and the health and well-being of young and middle-aged men. So we're going to look at each of those in turn, starting at the beginning with child and infant health. But first, we need to try to understand what the health gap's all about. So we spoke to Linda Bald, a professor of public health at Edinburgh University who's also a Scottish government advisor. Here's what she told us about the problem and what the Health Foundation thought the response should be. What we mean when we talk about the health gap in Scotland, it can be defined in a number of ways, but it is essentially the difference between the health amongst those who have more resources and fewer resources. And that can be measured in relation to area deprivation, so where you live, from the least deprived to the most deprived areas, or it might be another measure like your household income or even your level of education. And what we see is The gap, when you use those measurements, is in relation to a whole variety of things, but often we talk about life expectancy and healthy life expectancy. So how many years of healthy life people have. And those gaps are really big and they've been very, very large in Scotland for decades. We don't fully understand why health inequalities are more stark here in Scotland compared to, for example, other European countries. But we know that since the 1950s, Scotland has had, for example, the lowest life expectancy of all UK nations, um, and we have some of the the biggest health gaps. There are probably historic reasons for this. Um, I mean, at the root of it, it it is about deprivation and households having fewer resources. Um, But there are things like deindustrialisation that happened in parts of Scotland, for example, in previous decades. There may even be things that we don't understand about where people have come from historically in the country and uh, because we see big gaps, particularly in the west of Scotland. But at the end of the day, the effects of deprivation on health. The other factors that people talk about 
are what I would describe as <clears throat> more indirect, but also health harming. We have higher levels of smoking, higher levels of alcohol consumption, and higher levels of overweight and obesity in Scotland than, for example, elsewhere in the UK. So those risk factors, they also shorten people's lives. And they're worse in the most deprived areas. So we know that they contribute to health inequality. So it's a really complex picture that actually is not actually fully understood. The report was published by the Health Foundation. It's an important report. What it does is try to look back in recent years at how Scotland's health inequalities have developed, the reasons why they've developed or the potential reasons, the trends or patterns. So are things getting worse or better, for example, in infant mortality or or smoking or alcohol use, although they don't focus so much on individual behaviours. And then they really drill down into trying to understand why they occur. And what they paint is a really stark picture. They particularly point to the effects of austerity, so reduced public spending um, from about 2010, and the effect that has had on Scotland. And what they show is that for some of the key indicators, actually, things are actually either stalled or they're getting worse. There have been some improvements, slight reductions in alcohol-related deaths before the pandemic in particular, big reductions in smoking and pregnancy, some improvements in infant mortality, but a lot of the other measures are going in the wrong direction. The block grant that we've received in Scotland, and, and everyone will know that comes from Westminster, from the UK government, reduced in real terms between 2010 and 2017, and it's only now just returned to 2010 levels. Although some of the decisions the Scottish government makes are absolutely key. If there's less money for Scotland to spend on health and on making sure people have adequate incomes, and also on our public services, that means that some of these things are not going to improve. There are some positive examples where we're making real progress in Scotland. One I would point to is the big reductions in smoking rates we've seen over years, and they, they've also helped uh, with inequalities because smoking is actually the leading preventable cause of death still in Scotland, but it's also the leading preventable cause of health inequalities in terms of health behaviours. So we've seen big reductions um, in recent decades, and that's through policy action, and that includes smoking and pregnancy. So what are the things that we need to do? The report actually points to five key factors. They talk about adopting a longer term planning approach. And I really see this in my government advisory role is that, of course, there are lots of current pressures. So at the moment in Scotland, we have a cost of living crisis. We have huge NHS challenges, lots of problems that people are dealing with and the government is dealing with. So it's quite difficult for policymakers to say, actually, we want to think 10 or 20 years ahead. It's not about building buildings where you do that kind of thinking all the time, but it's about investing in prevention. And the government really wants to do that, but it's tough. And the report is quite critical and says we need to do more of it. It also says that it's not useful to work in chunks. So education, if they just focus on how well kids do in school, they're forgetting about does the family have enough resources? Do they have access to transport? What's the mental health issues? So we need to work across sectors. That's the second thing. We also need to have trust in communities, so really listen to communities. And again, I see this in my academic and government roles. Um, evaluate what you do and scrutinise it. And there's a lots of examples of us not doing that in Scotland where we can invest in something we don't actually know if it works. And then finally, scaling up success and innovation. Like the Health Foundation researchers, she's also particularly interested in the importance of interventions in early years. Here's what she told us about child poverty and what we can do. 
Poverty since around 2015, the report points out, been increasing. It's a slow but persistent upward trend for child poverty. It's been particularly marked. So it's basically increased by about two percentage points to reach about 24% in 2017 to 20. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, but it's a lot of children that are affected. And there have been particular increases in extreme child poverty. But there is some good news there. Actually, in Scotland in recent years, we've had lower levels of child poverty than elsewhere in the UK. And that's because the Scottish government has chosen to invest in things like the Scottish child payment and now increasingly devolved social security benefits. So although the trend um, has been going in the wrong direction, it's probably one indicator where we're starting to see Scotland actually see some real improvements and that will have an impact on health inequalities. Um, But the bottom line is, in terms of our health, the outcomes and the differences between people living in different communities start very early in life. So if we have a poor childhood with poor health and fewer resources in our household, we're much more likely to continue to have poor health as we age. And so that's why early intervention and the report points to this is really key. In these podcast episodes, we'll be travelling across Scotland, the UK and further afield to Canada and the States to speak to people about what works in terms of making sure everyone can access what they need to be well and healthy. But to begin our investigation into what approaches might be working, we wanted to start on our own doorstep, right here in Glasgow's Govan Hill, where I'm a reporter for Govan Hill magazine. It's also where the community newsroom, which the Ferret shares with Greater Govan Hill magazine, is based. In terms of child poverty, the Health Foundation report found inequalities have widened both in terms of low birth weight and the risk of obesity at the start of primary school. So it's clear nutrition is a big issue. So Greater Govanhill editor Rhiannon Davies visited Milk Cafe, a community space which supports refugee and migrant women as well as the wider community. Research shows that migrants, especially women, have specific health issues. Anxiety and depression have been found to be common in migrant communities. Research by the Scottish Refugee Council has found access to healthy and affordable food is vital to support good health. That's the experience of the team at Milk too. Here's what they have to say about how using food to build community connections can help to reduce the health inequalities that many women face. So we're here at Milk Cafe and in our family craft session today we'll be using English language to talk about food. As often happens with milk, it's become a bit of a medley of people who are here without their kids to learn English and people who are here with their kids. Um, so it's 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 nice. We've got Greer running a workshop. Think about your favourite favourite food, your favourite dish, and then do like a, a big drawing of that on the paper, and then we're going to make it into yarn paintings after we do some some games. And maybe we can go round in a circle picking a food. Hello, I'm Gabby. I'm one of the co-founders of Milk. Uh, Hello, I'm Angela and I'm the other one. Last year we ceased trading as a cafe and now it's a full-time community space. But food is still very much a part of what we do because we'll eat together, we'll, we'll, we'll share food. We talk about food a lot. So we've got a whole timetable of workshops at the moment and they mostly evolve around... English language practice speaking and um, different activities, so arts or crafts or um, we've got a sort of mental health cafe that we're doing next week. We've got employability skills, different things. But yeah, we all sit around one table and just share the space and share time talking. Go around in a circle, picking a food, picking the word for it, and then at the same time 
you can maybe also say what one of your favorite foods is and what you enjoy about having that meal. Ice cream is good for refreshment in summer when you are thirsty. Also, soup is good too in winter. When there's too much cold, you can drink soup. In Pakistan, I'm making some delicious food like biryani, korma. <laughs> so healthy, but <laughs> nice. And I choose chicken. It's just easy way to. It's just my favorite meat. I choose adobo, which is a Filipino meal, which um, like which has uh, has rice and um, chicken in it. Most of the participants that come to milk for our programs are from a refugee or migrant background. So, you know, the kind of hostile environment to refugees they're dealing with the financial implications of that but also the wider sort of cultural implications and that you know bus drivers being mean to you people in shops shouting at you because you don't and you know speak fluent english there's yeah there's even just accessing our classes and our spaces is difficult because the bus is 550 a day and if you've not got recourse to public funds that's a huge chunk out of your budget so you have to really want to attend we do provide bus passes when we can um and certainly some of the groups we've done that consistently but like the friday conversation cafe for example because it can be very busy we just don't have the funds to do that at the moment so that you know that's a huge impediment lots of the women who come on the wednesday because it's funded the bus pass don't come on the friday because they can't and yeah so just simple things like you know, a fiver to get on the bus is just insurmountable for a lot of people. I cook. Mm -hmm. I cook uh, from scratch and uh, uh, usually I try my kid to get some veg, food, and uh, sometimes I give them what they like. Yeah. It's hard to get veg. Yeah, it's hard, yeah. We try to... To make it nice, to look nice, to talk to them, maybe you tell them this one will make you strong. When you say that, they can eat. In terms of access to sort of fresh food, particularly, like there's small shops on Victoria Road, which are great because you can get affordable food, but you have to use it within a day or refrigerate it or it's completely off. You know, it's that kind of on the turn level of fresh food and like some people that we speak to don't have refrigerators if they're again in hotel accommodation there's nowhere to keep food stored so in terms of like your mental health when you can't intake fresh fruit or vegetables or you know healthy foods it's just really difficult I think for some people and if they can't give that to their children there's that responsibility of trying to feed your kids and knowing that the food that you're giving them isn't ideal but that you have no other option or that you were given no other option. And there's the autonomy side of it as well with your, in terms of mental well-being. Like, there's something so fundamental about choosing what you eat. Like, we had a lady a few weeks ago who her, the person she's staying in the hotel with has health implications and what they, what they can and can't eat. And there's no concession made for that with the diet that they're being provided. So that person is having to eat things that they shouldn't be eating that is... Like, absolutely, any doctor would say that is bad for their health. It's also, yeah, I can't imagine what that feels like as a as a parent or a carer. It's quite astonishingly horrible, actually. Yeah. 
Uh, well, she likes to eat uh, rice with yogurt. Um, it's, um, we use that in Albania. Uh, here I, 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 I haven't seen uh, nobody to use that, so we use that. She loves rice and yogurt. I cook all the time at home. Like, we definitely, you know, we see it in this community sometimes with things like sugar intake and dental care of younger kids and stuff. If you can't afford to buy a meal that, and risk your kids not eating it, you're going to buy what they eat. That was Rhiannon Davis in Glasgow's Milk Cafe highlighting a local response. So what are the Scottish health authorities doing to address the challenge? One key policy has been to introduce universal free school meals, currently available to all children from primary one to five. But the rollout for older children and young people has stalled. Five years ago, the former First Minister announced a plan to halve childhood obesity in Scotland by 2030. But recent data shows that it's actually increasing. And obesity in childhood has a huge impact on physical and mental health and well-being. It increases the risk of high blood pressure and cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, joint problems and low self-esteem. One project that is currently of interest to Glasgow South's health improvement team is Nurture Early for Optimal Nutrition, or NEON for short. It's in Brick Lane in the London borough of Tower Hamlets. NEON works alongside families to create healthy eating patterns and better support children's development. The latest project was created with the mums from the Bangladeshi community. Govan Hill and Brick Lane are both incredibly diverse neighbourhoods. It felt like there were some similarities that would be worth investigating. So I, along with my editor, Rhiannon, who we mentioned earlier, went to visit the project and find out more. Uh, we cooked the khichuri like its ingredient, ingredient is a four tablespoon rice. The rice can be pre-soaked and a four tablespoon mug beans and half small onion. This is Goli reading out a recipe that was developed for an infant weaning book that includes South Asian recipes. It is one of the outcomes of a project all about early intervention in children's health in the British Bangladeshi community in East London. Data shows that children from South Asian backgrounds are at a high risk of obesity, meaning that they have a much higher chance of developing chronic conditions such as diabetes and heart disease later in life. It is not just a problem in South Asian communities. Public Health England found that 28% of children aged between 2 and 15 are overweight or obese. Younger generations are also becoming obese at an earlier age. Nurture Early for Optimal Nutrition, or NEON, is a project which ran in Tower Hamlets from 2015 to 2023. The project identified three main issues to address in relation to child nutrition. Society and culture, physical environment and information and awareness. We caught up with Monica Lackenpower, who led the project. She's a professor of integrated community child health at Great Ormond Street Hospital and UCL. We started by asking why the Neon Project decided to work with infants. So we set up a workshop and we talked to the different communities and we asked them which age group should we be focusing on? Where do you need our help and how should we really go about working with you? So they were the ones who told us that we need more help for the children under five. When we've just given birth and our children are very young, we want to know more about feeding and care practices. How do we feed our children? How could we do that early on, before they get obese, before they have problems? And we know that 
the first 1,000 days are the most important time in a child's life. It's, in a way, it's like if you get that right, you, you have a much better chance of, of a child being healthier in the future. And we didn't want something that was top down. And that's what the families were very, very clear about. They wanted to co-create something with us. They wanted um, a program that really was in tune with their culture, that understood how they feed their children, how they care for their children. So we looked around the world and we looked at what was going on elsewhere. And interestingly, we found there were programs in places like Africa, Nepal, India, and we call these women participatory models, really. But what it really is, is women coming together and men or grandmothers coming together, finding solutions for themselves and then implementing those solutions and taking them forwards. So rather than us going around telling people you should eat this and you should do that, really the solutions come from the individuals themselves. We make our way towards Flower and Dean Community Centre to speak with Lully, one of the community facilitators. It's a sunny morning, we pass by people setting up canopies for the weekly food market. There's rich aromas coming from all directions. We walk through Brick Lane. It's bustling with sounds of vendors and leather jacket shops lining the street. They're a testimony to East London's textile industry, a legacy of the Bangladeshi community. The walls are plastered with stickers, graffiti and calls to action. One of them reads, Save Brick Lane. We turn into a side street and a large tree stands in front of the red brick building. The community centre is tucked in this unexpectedly quiet residential space away from the hustle. To deliver the programme, Neon worked with people from within the community. Lily got involved because she's just one of those people who can't stand by and do nothing. When she sees an opportunity to make a difference in her community, she takes it with both hands. This particular research really appealed to me personally because it was targeting my community. Having worked in health and worked as an advocate, I could see the struggles that like my aunts and my uncles were facing, diabetes and all the struggles with long-term health conditions. They had almost like accepted it, like, you know, because my mum has it, I'm going to get it anyway. Lily first got involved in the project as a community researcher, helping to carry out interviews with 141 parents and grandparents in the local community about their eating habits. So I still remember one mum, because she felt her child wasn't eating enough, she used to blend all the food and then put it in a bottle, cut the teat so it was a big hole, and then feed him while he was sleeping. She didn't obviously realise the hazards of choking and things like that. She actually was really, really upset and emotional to know that that was wrong, what she did. But she said she didn't know any better. She, she was just like so overwhelmed thinking that her child wasn't eating enough. And yes, he was probably a fussy eater, but she didn't know how to manage that behaviour. So she just did what she thought was, was the right thing. Throughout the course of the day, we met three different mums that took part in the project. This is Goli. Uh, I'm new mom. Uh, I have uh, one children, uh, his uh, age is uh, 15 months old. So when I joined the Neon program, I learned a lot of things. So sometimes uh, our country, the people said, if you add uh, sugary food, your baby's brain will be developed. And uh, my mom said, my mom, mother-in-law, or my sister-in-law said, uh, if you not uh, put uh, salt, uh, uh, this food is not tasty. 
And other thing is uh, we are Asian people. So sometimes uh, they say uh, when we add uh, sugary food, our babies will talk sweet in future. So that's why sometimes I put uh, sugar. Then uh, when I joined this program, I learned no, it's not good for brain, uh, baby's brain development and uh, uh, it's not good for my baby's health. But food was only part of the conversation. Another mum, Shakila, told me how she also learned so much more about how to best support her baby's development. Like exercising baby, I never know about it. How do exercise with baby and it is the health the brain, I never know. So when I know, then I just keep doing something with them. Even uh, play with kids. So I learned that tummy time, bath time, little bit longer, I didn't know. And uh, uh, before I never force them to go play. Sometimes say, no, stop playing, stop playing, stop jumping. But now I say, play, jump, whatever you want to do. Just mm-hmm. I want to develop. <laughs> yeah. And and I think in our Asian culture, it's seen as if you have a well-behaved, oh, well-behaved yes. child, it's a quiet child that just sits and does nothing. Whatever it is, if I have no place, I can go outside, then I say jumping on the bed. <laughs> yeah. we, we are limited space in London. We don't have the luxury of uh, big uh, spaces and big houses. So we have to make do with what we have. And I think that's one of the yes. things that we, uh, the group learned yes, and, yes. and bonded over really well as yes. well. I was interested to hear more about the cultural factors that affected the mums specifically and their ability to implement the changes that were being recommended and the need to come up with community-led solutions for these. Lily and Shakila told us more about this. Physical activity outside the home can be very difficult for our community. So we talk about, when we talked about doing activities outside with your child, I think the question came up, well, that's not going to be culturally appropriate for me to do as an Asian Muslim woman to be, for example, playing yeah, football. Yeah, just, just standing with them, yeah, not we, run. You, you can't play, with, you can't run, exactly. Yes, no, you can't, no, no. Even seen, uh, you know, running with your child, you know, just playing catch or running with your child in a park may be seen as inappropriate. Because we, we live in Asian area. So if someone do like this, others will oh, look what the, what the, this woman doing. <laughs> She's going mad. <laughs> Yeah. And we have to think of other ways we can get that physical activity um, yeah. um, done at the same time. While some solutions like exercising indoors can work, there is a need for wider conversations within the South Asian community for bigger changes to happen. Data that has been gathered by the researchers from the pilot trial is already showing positive results, both in terms of the participants' engagement with the process, but also in terms of children's health and body mass index. I think communities have a lot to teach professionals. We learnt to listen in a way that's a strange thing to say, but we learnt to listen because what families were saying is it's not always easy to implement the advice professionals are giving you. Um, It's easy to say, okay, mash up food and give it to a baby. But actually, if I haven't got a way to mash up food, what do I do? But because these solutions were coming from the individual communities themselves, it was more likely that they were going to follow those solutions and the other thing I learned was I think we all learned was that it's all about trust and relationships people want to talk in a safe space somewhere where they feel they won't be told off sometimes the mother said that they said we feel like if we really admit what's going wrong in our lives um, or we find difficult we're going to feel like we're being told off by somebody whereas because this was a safe space people felt they could communicate freely. Lucky one of the other mums we spoke to that day 
told us that she's already starting to notice a difference in her child, but also in herself. Yeah, basically, I'm very happy. I'm not family shakli khoin. I'm not zain. Then so clever. She's saying she's getting a lot of compliments from friends and family about her son and how he's developed. So he's like he's developed certain skills. Like um, she's got obviously nieces and nephews and cousins who are similar age and they can't do those things. And one of the things she's saying is um, independent feeding, so he can now feed himself. So she's saying when her relatives see that, they're really surprised that you know how can a child so small be able to feed himself? And then she's saying she tells them that she learnt from the neon sessions what she's learned yeah. and she's saying she's saying she's telling them to do the same and then their children will be clever like her child, her son yeah basically our anxiety problem kore bishi ami age sob shomoy gore thaktam bishi kono hano bar hoitam na then lilia pu hoison thara gese program age ami janchi jene tai nomdare shikaiso hoy so she's saying she's been suffering from um, anxiety problems. She, she, when she came to our sessions, she was very anxious and very afraid of a lot of things. Even just being around people too much, she found it very overwhelming. Um, but she's saying talking to, to me and um, through our reassurance, she felt empowered. Uh, because in our Neon pack, we have the barrier cards, which we talk about a mother's health. Uh, being just as important as, as a child's health. It was quite amazing to see how the women we spoke to about the project had so many good things to say. And not only had it made a difference in their lives, but they had been sharing that knowledge with their friends, their sisters, their aunties and their neighbours. They wanted everyone to get a chance to get involved in the Neon project. But like many new projects, there are challenges. I asked Monica what they are. One is resources. Um... Resources from the way of not just monetary resources, but personnel resources as well. You can have all the money in the world, but if you don't have the people who want to work on the ground in such a program, you can't make a difference. And vice versa. You can have all the people who want to do something, but you don't have the money to do it. So for this particular project, having the buy-in from the local authority and the public health teams, but also the third sector, so all your stakeholders... You have to have your stakeholders on board. They have to see the importance of this work. What was very beautiful here was how excited people were about this programme. Because they co-owned the programme, they felt they had co-produced it, they wanted to make this work themselves. So they're very invested in it. We say people are hard to reach. People are not hard to reach, and I think that's the first thing. You find safe spaces to people to talk, they will talk. You build trust and relationships People want to invest in their children's future. It's not that they don't want to invest in, the, in, in their children's future, but sometimes they're not given a voice to do that. You cannot come from an outside perspective and come into somebody else's life and make a difference. You have to take the time to learn about how other people live, what motivates people. And I think that takes a little bit of humility, that we don't know it all, and also that we can learn from the community themselves how to do things better. That was Summer and Rhiannon from Greater Govan Hill magazine reporting from the NEON project in London on a response that's working there. And there's so much more work that's currently being done to address some of the challenges of child poverty and health inequalities, both here in Scotland and beyond. We've written more about some of this and you can read all our work on this topic at theferret.scot or greatergovanhill.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram at greatergovanhill or theferret.scot or Twitter at Govanhill underscore mag or Ferret Scott. 
and get more info on how to become a member on our websites. Support our work and help us do more of it. We'll be back in the next episode to look at how we can address one of Scotland's most difficult and heartbreaking challenges to health inequalities, the drug death crisis, visiting projects in both Scotland and Vancouver in Canada for inspiration. Remember you can listen to all three episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to give us a review. It really does help.